It is very, very encouraging this morning, I must say, as I look out across this room and I see that it is so full. We watch the emails come rolling in, almost an avalanche of those who might not be able to make it and were not able to make it, and yet God has filled His house, and we love to see the house of the Lord full, don't we? Amen. As we continue now the preaching through Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we have covered two chapters, and we make our way now to the third chapter. So I encourage you to, as you remain standing for the honor of the hearing and the reading of God's Word, to take up your copy of the Word if you have it with you. Otherwise, listen and hear now the Word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, Doeth he by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we come to this text, we hear an exhortation to us here at this particular church and to the church universal through the ages. In Adam, we are dead in our sin and ever prone to foolishness and subject to the bewitching influence of the, of the enemy. Amen. O Lord, therefore, we pray that this, your word, would reach deep into our souls and that your Holy Spirit would reveal the lies we have embraced and, the, and illumine the truths that you would have us to hear and apply them to our understanding that we might be shored up in the pure gospel of Christ and be true children of Abraham and all your wonderful blessings. We thank you that we are no longer children of Adam, but we are children in Christ. This we pray in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. At the 2014 Ligonier National Conference, during a Q&A session, this question came in from the audience and was read by the moderator. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his punishment so severe and long-lasting? Dr. R.C. Sproul, Sr., as expected, started providing an answer to the question. And as Dr. Sproul reached the main point of his answer, which was that this man, Adam, being made by God out of dirt, disobeyed his maker in an overt act of rebellion. And we think God was too severe as Dr. Sproul was answering this question, his countenance 
began to overflow with righteous indignation, and he gave the attention-getting response that is now widely found on the internet in meme form. What's wrong with you people? I think several of you are quite familiar with that. Perhaps many of you have seen it. I still find it convicting. In that moment, Dr. Sproul was still every bit the teacher. While some have made light of that moment in memes and still others have been critical, we all do, would do well to be more zealous for the holiness of God as Dr. Sproul was and is. I think the passion, the emotional pathos that Dr. Sproul exhibited there is somewhat analogous to that which we find in this opening chapter 3 in Paul's epistle to the Galatian church. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Some may argue that Paul is here writing with a tone of pity, or perhaps with the gentlest form of rebuke, but I sense more, what is wrong with you people, than, you silly Galatians, what were you thinking? It's all too easy, isn't it, to think of the Apostle Paul as primarily a logic machine of a man used by the Holy Spirit to capture and convey with clarity those doctrines of the faith and the essential truths of the church. But we need to remember that Paul was a man who lived in a culture where excellence of rhetorical skill was both known and appreciated. As Athens was in decline, the Roman Republic emerges as the cultural and economic power, and the traditions of Greek rhetoric finds its way into the Republican center of Rome around the middle of the second century BC. Roman rhetoric subsequently reaches its zenith in the second half of the first century AD, and of course, this is where we find Paul. In previous chapters, we see Paul employing the rhetorical strategy of ethos as he establishes his apostolic authority and credentials. But here, at the beginning of chapter 3, his love and passion for the purity of the gospel in the church have built up to a point of bursting, and he now gushes out with this pathos-laden appeal to the emotions. And of course we still see the logos, that logical reasoning that we are most familiar with at work throughout the epistle. But here in these first five chapters, these first five verses of chapter 3, we find a rapid-fire succession of six questions that would have put the Galatian, Galatian recipients of this letter off their guard and caused them to reflect in the rhetorical nature of the questions posed supplying the implied answer for themselves, and ultimately bringing conviction of their error in embracing the teaching of the Judaizers. The essence of what these false teachers were saying was, grace is not enough. The cross is not enough. And the Holy Spirit is not enough. What God has wrought among you is not enough. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter heaven unless you are circumcised and adhere to the law of Moses. 
And such teaching is not a subtle variation in the gospel, but is no gospel at all. Such teaching is necessarily a diminishing of the sufficiency and efficacy of Christ's finished work on the cross. It necessarily robs God of the glory due to Him alone. It is at its heart a works righteousness which no man can satisfy. And the Spirit-inspired, Spirit-led Apostle Paul will have none of it. The eternal souls of the Galatians and the truth of the Gospel are at stake. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has defended and established his authority as an apostle of the gospel. Beginning here in chapter 3 and continuing through chapter 4, in the heart of the letter, he will defend the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone. And in chapters 5 and 6, he will encourage and exhort the Galatians to stand fast in the liberty of the gospel wherewith Christ has made us free. Let us then turn our attention now to the text before us and take heed to these six questions that Paul asked of the Galatians, lest we fall into the same error, knowing there is no temptation that has overtaken us except as is common to man. And as we do so, let us make sure that we are sufficiently introspective and contemplative to be able to honestly ask ourselves, are we so foolish? And so we find the first question in verse 1 of chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Up to this point in his letter, Paul has defended the work of the gospel in his life from a personal perspective. He has given his testimony and established his apostolic calling and authority. But now he turns the camera, as it were, around and points it directly at the Galatians. He earnestly desires for them to bring into remembrance the gospel that was preached to them a gospel that they truly embraced. And so he reaches out to them through these words and grabs hold of them by their baptisms. He slaps them out of their fog of confusion. Oh, foolish Galatians! And this is a good translation, by the way. The O is there on purpose, and it's in the original text, and it serves the purpose to make it clear that he is directly addressing the Galatians in their foolishness. It indicates indignant astonishment and the Galatians' defection from the truth. We find this vocative O in Matthew 17 when the disciples couldn't heal the demon-possessed boy and Jesus responds, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Paul calls the Galatians foolish, lacking a, indicating a lack of spiritual discernment. Their folly and doctrinal laziness is proving to be an open door to a false gospel. And so he asks the first rhetorical question. 
who hath bewitched you? Who is it that is able to bring you under their hypnotic, bewitching spell with their false teaching? They were bewitched. And as you consider that question, you may find yourself asking, well, if, if they were bewitched, does that mean they were never true believers? Never truly saved? That they could be bewitched? It's a fair question. But Paul is definitely addressing this letter to the Galatians as true believers. If we just look ahead to verse 26, we read, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There's never a question in this letter about the spiritual condition of the Galatians. They are believers. Initially, when the Apostle Paul came and preached the gospel, they received the gospel that he preached, and they fully embraced it. But now, they have become bewitched. True believers bewitched and drawn into false doctrine. The Judaizers' message was, salvation is in Christ. Salvation is by grace and faith, but also by works. You must be circumcised as prescribed in the law of Moses. You must maintain the Mosaic ceremonies and laws. Salvation then, to the bewitchers, was by grace and works. Maybe you've never thought about the fact that believers, true believers, true Christians can be bewitched. But every warning in the New Testament about false teachers and false doctrine is an assumption that believers can indeed be bewitched. Every command to hold to the truth, to guard the truth, to rightly handle the word of truth is also based on the assumption of our susceptibility to bewitching. Yes, believers can be seduced into believing lies about the gospel and not obeying the truth of the gospel. What lies or what subtle aberrations might we have embraced? And then to make the question personal, Paul adds, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. The NKJV translates this evidently set forth as portrayed. Paul is reminding them of the gospel that was clearly preached to them, preached in such vivid detail and comprehensiveness that it remains in their mind's eye like a large portrait or a placard that they simply can't dismiss. They knew the truth of the gospel. It had been delivered to them with clarity such that they could almost hear the nails being pounded into the cross and see the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Blood that was shed sufficiently and comprehensively for their sins, satisfying the whole requirement of the law. 
They knew in their hearts, even more than in their minds, the glory and hope of Christ's resurrection. They need only remember the gospel that had been proclaimed and portrayed. The gospel that they had believed and embraced by faith. A faith through which they had been justified. When you were going through a trial or a difficult season of life, in that moment when you were keenly aware of your flesh, don't look for something external to blame it on. Or browse to try and find an internet guru. No. Remember Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe the Gospel. Remember that Christ's death is sufficient in that moment as well. But Paul has only just begun to inquire, and we find the second question in verse 2. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing of faith? In other words, he is asking them, how were you saved? Or how were you justified? At this point, the gospel portrait has been brought into their minds and the realization that the Judaizers have bewitched them by undermining the liberty of the gospel with the burdens of the law is beginning to clear the fog of false teaching. And so Paul asked this second question to bring further into their remembrance the circumstances of their salvation. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He is exhorting them to think back to the gospel that was preached to them. He is exhorting them to remember when despair became hope, when they felt the burden of sin lifted off of their back, to think back when all of their questions about the purpose of their lives and who made them and who made this world were answered and to when they were filled with the Spirit and were born again and could not wait to share this truth with their family and their neighbors. Think back to that time, that moment, and tell me, were you required to do anything? Did we ask you to to be circumcised or to change your diet before that moment? Did you need to take a pilgrimage or pay a fee first? Or did you simply hear the gospel and believe? And so the Spirit of Christ, whom you had never seen, descended upon you and gave you new life. Which was it? Obviously, the answer is that the Holy Spirit was not operative in the lives of the Galatians by the works of the law, but by believing the message of Christ crucified. Paul is reminding them of their own experience in order to drive them toward the sufficiency of grace. They had received the Spirit apart from any legalistic, law-keeping components. And so to add those to the gospel at this point, was both wrong and foolish. Which brings us to this third question. Are ye so foolish? The assumed answer to the question is yes. Paul opens this series of questions by calling them foolish and he now asks them if 
they are indeed so foolish. He is continuing his interrogatory assault in order to shake them awake and to bring them out of the trance. He is trying to bring conviction and shame regarding their foolishness. This is important. Listen up. Are you really so foolish that having begun in the Spirit, you need to now continue and finish in the flesh? Really? Which is the fourth question. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Paul moves from the second question about their justification and presses this question now about their sanctification. Again, in this question, we see that Paul is assuming that the Galatians have believed the gospel and have been saved. He is presupposing that they have begun in the Spirit. In asking this question, Paul is implying that it is utterly senseless for the Galatians to embrace a works righteousness, whereby having begun in the Spirit, they now regress into the works of the flesh. He is reminding them that having been buried with Christ by baptism into death, they are now to walk in the newness of life. He is reminding them that in Christ no Sin no longer has dominion over them, and they are no longer under the law, but under grace. That having been made free from sin, they simultaneously became the servants of righteousness. A righteousness that came not by the law. In this question, Paul is letting them know that if they try to go back to law-keeping as a means of sanctification... They are forgetting the redemption of Christ and returning to a law that they can only fall short of and a law that Christ perfectly kept on their behalf. Paul may even be using this particular question ironically by using the same language the Judaizers had employed. The Judaizers' message was that beginning in Christ was a fine way to start the faith, but to be complete perfect in the faith. They needed to be circumcised and keep the law. Is this not our ongoing temptation? It seems sometimes we do a pretty good job answering the question, how was I justified? Or perhaps how, what must I do to be saved? But when we move from justification into sanctification, We have a greater tendency to want to bring our own works and our own effort into the equation. We look at the evidence of sanctification in the lives of other Christians, those more mature in the faith, and we see the things that they do and the choices they make, and we assume that they must somehow be the source of all of this manifested sanctification if not in whole, at least in part, but sanctification, like justification, is a work of the Spirit in us. We need to shore up our confidence that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. As Paul later writes in chapter 5 of this letter, the works of the flesh are manifest, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, etc. But the Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, 
gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. But aren't we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Yes, but keep reading. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. The only way to begin, continue, and finish the Christian life is by the sovereign and perfect work of Almighty God. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16. Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So everyone who is born of so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. To look to our own works and our own effort in sanctification is to rob God of a glory that is due his name alone. And as we come to the fifth question found in verse 4, we need to be careful to understand the question without stumbling over the translation. Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? The word which may distract us a bit here is suffered. We tend to only think of this word in a negative connotation. But here we find something different. The idea is not that the Galatian Christians have suffered because of the gospel. He is not referring to persecution at this point, although there may have been persecution, and indeed there was. In fact, we should, as Christians, expect persecution. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, reminding Timothy that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But that's, that's not the meaning here. The Greek word translated suffered can refer to either a positive or a negative experience, which can only be determined by the surrounding context. It can mean suffer in the negative sense, such as experience persecution, or as it does here in the positive sense, meaning experience the blessings of salvation in the Lord. As Paul brings to remembrance, to the remembrance of the Galatians, who they are in Christ, he has reminded them that they have heard and believed the gospel which was portrayed vividly in the preaching they sat under. They received the Holy Spirit in salvation, and they are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Thus, Paul's question is, did you experience all of these blessings in vain? If they were in vain. Was their conversion futile? Or genuine? 
The implication being that surely they can see for themselves that they had experienced a genuine salvation under the hearing of faith of the pure gospel of Christ. And they were now partakers of the kingdom of Christ and were growing in their walk with the Lord apart from any works of the law. Why then are they now turning to the law, falling under the spell of the Judaizers and embracing another gospel which is no gospel at all? This other gospel is that which is futile and powerless and vanity to pursue. (coughs) The message to the Galatians is that they did not need to be searching for that which had already been supplied completely and perfectly in and by Christ Jesus. And the message to us is the same. These are eternal truths being pressed by the Apostle Paul. Let those who have ears to hear receive this exhortation afresh. And so as Paul concludes this line of questioning in his argument, he does so in verse 5 by expanding on a previous question. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, Doeth he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Having called them in out of their foolishness by asking one question after another and not even pausing to provide the answer to his questions, he now provides the therefore, which signals the end of a unit of thought and and causes any residual resistance to his argument to collapse under the weight of the truth and the recollection of the work of the Spirit in and among them. The Galatians should now be saying, we have been justified by grace alone through faith alone. What fools we have been to listen to those who would have us to be placed under the bondage of the law. What fools we have become to be so easily bewitched and beguiled by purveyors of a lie that was disguised as the gospel. In this sixth and final question, Paul is asking, does God who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does He do this by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? By calling the Galatians to remember the foundation of their justification, justification that came by faith in the hearing and believing of the Gospel preached, Paul is now calling upon them to also remember the miraculous acts they had seen at the time of their first hearing. We have an account in Acts 14 of the times that Paul is calling the Galatians to remember. Beginning at verse 1 of Acts 14, we read, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together, talking about Paul and Barnabas, into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of His grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel boldly 
giving powerful testimony to the grace of God. And God validated their testimony by granting signs and wonders, those miracles to be done by the hands of these two men. And the miracles continued, not only in Iconium, but Lystra, as we find in verse 8 of Acts chapter 14. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. The Galatians. The Galatians who, who received this letter and, and were reading it or having it read to them were expected to remember Paul and Barnabas who were filled with the Holy Spirit and that they were expected to recall these signs and wonders done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. They were expected to remember that story from Iconium. They were expected to have heard about and maybe even still know of the lame man healed miraculously at Lystra. Paul is asking them now if the power of the Holy Spirit that worked these signs and worked these wonders among them and performed these miracles, were they earned by the works of the law or merited in some way? The answer is, of course, no. Paul is also asking, what brought the healing power of the Holy Spirit to that lame man at Lystra? It was faith. Faith in the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. That man had heard and believed the gospel that Paul and Barnabas had boldly preached there at Lystra, and he was healed, crippled from his mother's womb. No strength in his legs whatsoever. He heard and he believed. And God, in order to validate the testimony of his word, granted his Holy Spirit and power to Paul and Barnabas to heal the crippled man who leaped and walked away healed. He walked away whole to the glory of God alone. Paul is asking the Christians there at Galatia, if this man was healed by some work of the law or by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? He was healed by faith. The conclusion of Paul's line of argumentation is, therefore, since you have seen these miracles wrought among you by the hearing of faith, since you have not experienced the blessings of God in vain, since you are not made perfect in the flesh but by the Spirit, and since you have not received the Spirit of God by the works of the law, but by the hearing of faith, be no more fools and put away these false teachers of false doctrine and live to the glory of God and the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. And as I conclude this message, I will do so by asking a few questions under the heading, Are We So Foolish? How are we like the foolish Galatians? What false teachers are we subject to? Teachers who tickle our ears and who would bewitch us with a false gospel. How are we to respond to this revelation in God's Word so that we might be strong and not be blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes our way? 
So let me suggest the following four exhortations that will help us to keep strong in the face of false teaching. Number one, be Berean in the pursuit of sound doctrine. It is incumbent upon the people of God to know their God and know His Word and be growing in the knowledge of what His Word teaches. It is not sufficient to rest upon what you have received or inherited and respond to the naysayer with, well, that's what our church does and teaches, or I believe what my parents believe. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, children. It is good to honor your parents and take heed to their beliefs. But we should be like the Bereans who were commended as more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Go beyond rote responses and statements of doctrine and grow an understanding of them based on the truths revealed in the word. You do not have to reinvent the wheel and and write your own catechisms and confessions of faith. We have sound confessions of faith and catechisms, but it's good and noble to know why you believe what you believe as well as the scriptural foundations for those beliefs. And this is especially true in the essentials of the gospel. Slight deviations here will necessarily result in gross errors as you move into other doctrines. Anything added to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is revealed in the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone is a false gospel, which is therefore no gospel at all. Number two, exercise biblical discernment. We cannot go through the courses of our daily lives apart from exercising some sort of discernment. And so it is therefore necessary that as Christians, our discernment be biblically informed and shaped by the truths and principles revealed in Scripture. We read in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. And this is a sober warning to all of us. We show ourselves fools if we seek the counsel of just any expert or teacher that we find online and who just so happens to agree with our biases and preconceived notions. We are foolish when we throw ourselves into the latest Christian book or broadcast without the guardrails and the lens of Scripture well established in our hearts and minds. Proverbs 11.14 informs us where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. How are we to do this apart from the Word of God? All things are to be brought under the scrutiny of Scripture and to be held up to the plumb line of God's truth. We have ready and abundant access to the Word of God. Praise God. We have sound teachers and trustworthy reference materials. I therefore exhort us all to be cautious of the cacophony of worldly wisdom that surrounds us and to exercise biblical discernment. Number three, defend the truth. 
we must stand ready to defend the truth. Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In 1 Timothy 6, we read, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding vain, profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. It is not sufficient to declare the truth. We must be prepared to also defend the truth against the onslaught of false teachers of every sort whose beguiling words can easily lead the weak astray and corrupt the truth even into the next generation. As Jude, the brother of John, writes, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Know the truth. Contend for the faith. That faith which was once delivered unto the saints and in the face of error, as the Lord gives opportunity, defend the truth. Number four, in our last exhortation, live the gospel daily. Sometimes we live our Christian lives as if the gospel was only useful and needed at that point of our justification. But that perspective is so very far from the truth. We are to live our lives each and every day, yes, each and every moment in the light of the gospel, believing the gospel, and looking unto Christ in all things. We need to walk in love, walk in light, repent daily, and believe the gospel. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But if you walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness in mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, providing wise counsel from the Word of God, pointing each other to Christ, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and to the Father by Him. May our great and mighty Lord be pleased to preserve us and our children in the truth of His Word and the beauty of His gospel until His return in glory. Amen. Our most gracious Father in heaven, 
We are so very thankful for your word, for its ready availability, for the gospel which is truly good news, for your church, and for the faith once delivered to the saints. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and ask for his preserving presence in our lives to keep us from folly and to grant us discernment in the face of false teaching. We also pray for the conviction of your Spirit who would have us to pursue all the means of your most abundant grace. For We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.